Shalom, this is Rabbi Brian. If these podcasts have been a blessing to you, will you consider sponsoring a child at our orphanage in Haiti? Our orphanage is called Beth Chesed, which means House of Kindness in Hebrew. We care for about 40 children. We feed them, shelter them, educate them, and of course teach them about our Lord, Yeshua, the Messiah. Visit www.bethchesed.org. That's www.bethchesed.org to sponsor a child or give a tax-deductible donation. I appreciate you considering it. Now enjoy this podcast recorded at our Mishkan David Shabbat service in Rhode Island. Shalom. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, who has blessed us in Messiah with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Messiah before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Messiah Yeshua, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Messiah as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Messiah, we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Messiah, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. All right, so to address the, the elephant in the room, if that feels like it's too long for a preaching text, you are right. That is way too much to cover in one sermon. So be not afraid. I, uh, I chose that, or I chose to read the whole thing, because surprisingly enough, in the original language, the Greek, that is all one sentence. All those six slides, it just runs together. It's this wave of words, right? It's kind of amazing sentence. It's just all in there. The, the redemption, the adoption, the election, the spiritual blessings in heavenly places. And it's, the, it's this rush. It's too much, right? And it, what's interesting about this passage is it's a bit of a mirror. I think you look into it and you see what you're interested in. So, for instance, when I was doing research for this, I looked at one of my favorite preachers, Tim Keller, and he's a, a Calvinist, you know, reform guy who loves to, to teach and teach doctrine. So he does a, a, a 42 sermon series on Ephesians where about 15 messages are just from this one sentence. That's a lot of doctrine, but, you know, that's, that's what he's into. And, uh, and then there's a guy named Jack Hayford who helped found the seminary I'm in, and he's, a, he's more of a charismatic Holy Spirit guy. And so he looks at Ephesians, and he sees in it uh, the key to bringing the church to its fullness of, of fruit if they can just see the power of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians, right? So he sees this as a very 
spirit-filled message. And I think both those approaches are great. I think you can, you can do a 60-sermon series looking at all the doctrines of election and predestination and all these things that come up. Or you can focus on the Holy Spirit and his role in empowering the church. My objective this morning is far more modest. Um, I'm kind of a, a less is more sort of guy. And so therefore, this is my objective. I want to um, look at one particular phrase in this where he talks about the mystery of Messiah, the mystery of his will. He's made known to us the mystery of his will in Messiah. And there's a little bit in there, according to the good pleasure that he set forth in Messiah. So the mystery of his will in Messiah. And I think that's really where he's going in the letter overall. This is what Ephesians is about, is the mystery of Messiah. So that's my objective for us today, is, is to look at that. And the, uh, the other point we need to, to just briefly hit before we dive in is uh, the danger or the risks of reading someone else's mail. Because this letter was written perhaps for us, but not to us. It was written to the Ephesians, hence the name of the letter, uh, the Ephesians, right? And so it's always uh, a little bit tricky when you're reading someone else's mail. For instance, if the, if the Apostle Paul was reading to me today, he might look into my life and say, uh, there's a problem that I want to help John fix. And um, using Pauline language, he might say, oh, foolish John Wright, like he does to the Galatians. You foolish Galatians. Uh, it just grieves my heart that you're getting so little exercise. Do not read in the morning until you exercise for 30 minutes. Maybe that's what Paul would write to me, right? And then, and then 200 years later, uh, someone might read that and make a doctrine out of it. You know what? Paul is saying that no one should read in the mornings until, until everyone exercises. You know, I don't think that's necessarily true. Like, maybe that's what he wants to say to me, but maybe he's not saying it to everyone. So when we read Paul's letters, we have to be especially thoughtful about is, is he saying this universally to all, or is he trying to correct a specific problem in this specific place? Well, fortunately for us, this letter to Ephesus is on the spectrum uh, far to the, to the pole where it's for everybody. It's not like the letter to Galatia where there's a specific problem. It's, it's far more likely that uh, Ephesus was just the first congregation to get this letter, and it's meant to be circulated around to all kinds of congregations. So that makes our job a lot easier because we don't have to look at what problem Paul is addressing. That's nice. So the end of the background, just that we should know, since there's no particular uh, problem, is that Ephesus is not in Israel. We should just know a little bit of geography. Ephesus is north of Israel, north of Syria, and in modern-day Turkey, which, if your geography is no better than mine, that still doesn't help you. So it's across the Aegean Sea from Greece. Modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. And when we read about Ephesus in Acts, we find that uh, Paul spent a lot of time there. He did really well in Ephesus. He spent over two years building a congregation there. And, of course, he starts, like Paul would, by trying to go to the synagogues, because there are Jews in Ephesus. It's a big city. But the Jews don't take the message, and so he spends his two years building a congregation of Gentiles. And in Acts 19, we find out actually that he is so successful in getting people into his assembly, his congregation, 
we could say into his church, but then we start thinking about Sunday worship and that they're planning this year's Christmas program. And of course, it wasn't like that, right? It was much more like probably what we're doing here, probably meeting on Shabbat with Gentiles. They're learning some Jewish things. But he's so successful in getting Gentiles into these congregations that he causes a riot in the city when the craftsmen and the idol makers start losing business. No one's buying their silver idols anymore. And they, and they get the whole city riled up because like this guy, he's too successful we got to get him out of here. And so at that point, Paul decides he's going to get out of Dodge and uh, go back to Jerusalem, where he does. And then he's arrested and sent to a prison in Rome where he writes this letter back to the Ephesians. And why is he arrested? We actually heard some of the story this morning. Paul was, was giving us the story. Thank you, Paul. Kind of amazing. He gets arrested in Jerusalem because they accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the courtyard of the temple. I think his name is like Trophimus. And they Gentiles are not allowed. It's the, it's the dividing wall, the wall of hostility in the temple. Gentiles can come into the courtyard, but they can't go into the sanctuary. And they think Paul has brought a Gentile, Trophimus, in. And where is that Gentile from? Ephesus. So these Ephesians, they are very well verse they know what paul has gone gone through for them in trying to stand up for gentiles and so that's why in in chapter three of this letter to the ephesians paul says to them this is the reason that i paul am a prisoner for messiah yeshua for the sake of you gentiles for surely you've already heard of the commission of god's grace that was given me for you and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I wrote about above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Messiah. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. And the mystery is, I'm not going to tell you, commercial break, building of suspense. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word, and specifically Paul in this letter to the Ephesians. I do, Lord, ask that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you this morning, my rock and my redeemer. And as we think about what is pure and true, Father, I, I pray that anything I say that is pure and true, that it would stick into our hearts and our minds and change the way we live and anything that I would say, Lord, tonight, today, this morning, that is not of you, that it would just fall to the ground and, and disappear. So be with us as we hear your words. Amen. So there's the mystery up on the screen. The mystery of his will. The mystery of Messiah. So what is it? I cut off before I told you, but that's what we're going to look at this morning. The mystery of Messiah. Three points. What is it? Why is it important? And how we know it's true. The mystery of Messiah. What is it? Why it's important? How we know it's true. Okay, what is it? What is this mystery? What's the big deal? What is a mystery? A mystery is something that's unknown. In fact, in Paul's day, 
There were these uh, mystery cults, these mystery religions that were all built around you come and then you, you go through the certain levels and you, you come in, you get initiated, and then we tell you the secrets. I think we still have these today. They're called like secret societies. Well, how can it be a secret society? You're telling me you're a secret society. Well, not, not the society itself is a secret, but we have secrets that you have to get involved and move up, right? And so secrets are something that are not revealed until you get initiated. And yet Paul here is telling us that the mystery has been revealed. This is a different kind of mystery. This is a mystery that's free for everyone to know. So what is the original mystery that's no longer so mysterious? Here it is. There's a big question in Judaism. It's, a, it's an ancient question. We could call it uh, the Gentile question. In other words, what is going to happen to all the nations in the Messianic age? What does the coming of Messiah mean for the Gentiles? Because going back to this sort of uh, Torah portion that we're in, or actually earlier, the, going back to the exodus from Egypt, we see that the relationship between the nations and Israel is fraught. They do not get along, right? In fact, it's a big theme, not only in Torah, but running through the rest of the Tanakh, the Old Testament. We've got conflict with uh, the Canaanites when they come into the land, right? They're, they're Israelites, and they want to live in Israel. But there's a problem, because Israel's not Israel yet. It's Canaan. And who's living there? Canaanites and Hittites and Perizzites and Yebusites and all kinds of other ites that they don't really consider this Israel, right? So if they f there's these fights. There's wars between Israel and the nations. And then what? There's uh, more wars. There's wars with Philistines. There's exile. There's Assyrians and Babylonians and Persians. And then there's the Greeks versus the Maccabees. And there's all kinds of conflict. And so that is one of the main themes that we have to see as we read the Bible. It's like, there's us, the Jews, and there's them, the non-Jews, and for the most part, the non-Jews hate us, and they kill us. And as Paul showed us this morning, Adonai is very adamant that bloodshed requires more bloodshed. So what does that mean for all these Nations that are enemies of the Jews. What is going to happen at the end? That is the mystery of Messiah. And no one knows for sure what will happen to all these enemies of Israel. So what do people suggest? Well, there's one major strain that suggested that there's going to be a mass conversion to Judaism. That when Messiah comes, there'll be a few people he has to crush because they're actually attacking Jerusalem, but then the rest of the nations will see this wonderful, powerful Messiah, and they will convert to Judaism, and they'll get circumcised, and they'll start keeping the Shabbat, and, and all the other rules of Torah, and then, then they'll, they'll follow Messiah, and that's how we get peace on the earth, because we know in the Messianic age there's got to be Shalom under King Messiah, so the nations must come around. That's one possibility, and people wrote about that. So what's the other possibility for the nations? It was just as popular. That we would all be killed. The vengeance of God requires blood for blood, and all the blood of the Jewish martyrs would be avenged when Messiah came. Where do they get this idea? Well, let me read you just a few passages from the Tanakh. Psalm 94, O Lord, thou God of vengeance, thou God of vengeance, shine forth. 
Ezekiel 25, and I will lay my vengeance upon Edom. Edom, in Jewish thinking, is generally Rome. And Rome stands for the church, for the Christians. Psalm 79, let the avenging of the outpoured blood of thy servants be known among the nations before our eyes. We want to see them die and kill in front of us. Psalm, Psalm 79, this is the psalmist writing. The God who gave me vengeance and subdues people under me, Psalm 18. Nahum 1, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. Second Samuel, the God who gave me vengeance, Deuteronomy, for he avenges the blood of his servants. This is the God who takes the blood of his people Israel very seriously. And he, he commands even Israel to, to take the life of someone who takes a life. In Isaiah 63, it's describing God's vengeance against Edom. And when God is asked, Why is thy apparel red and thy garments like his that treads in the winepress? God replies, I have trodden the winepress alone. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my raiment. Here's a picture of God treading the winepress, trampling the grapes, who are the Gentiles. And he's getting his whole garment red with their blood. And this theme continues even beyond Paul, of course, who thought he'd solve the mystery, but um, the Ashkenazic Jews in, in France and Germany, they, they wrote a lot of poems. Why? Because they were living in Christian lands and being oppressed and often killed for being Jews. So in the first uh, the first Christian um, trying to attempt to take back the Holy Land, the Crusade, there was one day when uh, they went, the Crusaders went into the village of, of Mainz and killed 1,100 Jews. Last year we had 11 Jews killed in the synagogue in Pittsburgh, and, and there was a lot of outcry about that. Well, imagine that 1,100 were killed. And so... The Jewish people aren't going to fight back with, with war weapons, so they, they wrote prayers calling on God. God, will you take vengeance? Remember the blood of your martyrs. And they imagined that this raiment of God actually, that God was, was, had this robe that was white. And whenever a Jewish martyr would die, he would take the blood and, and put it on this robe as proof. In, in the, when Messiah came, he would have this robe of blood that there would be a blood-for-blood blood accounting, and that this robe that once had been white would be stained with the blood of the martyrs and would prove that the Gentiles were guilty. In fact, when we do our Pesach, our Passover meal, and we take the, the drops of wine out of the glass, and we put them on a, a white napkin, yeah, you've done that. Well, actually, the, the roots of that, it, it might mean something different today. But the roots of that go back to this Ashkenazic custom of calling out for God's vengeance, that the wine we take out of the cup is actually the blood of the Gentiles, saying, like, God, there's got to be a blood-for-blood blood accounting. Every drop of Jewish blood that's been spilled has been marked and remembered 
on this robe. So that's, that's the mystery. How is messianic vengeance really going to look? Does it mean death for almost everyone who's non-Jewish? Does it mean conversion, that the Gentiles will become circumcised and, and live as Jews? That's the mystery. So point two, why is this important? Let's hear what Paul says again. Surely you've heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Messiah. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that is, The Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Messiah Yeshua through the gospel. That's pretty amazing. So, what is Paul saying? This big mystery that's no longer mysterious, it's been revealed. The Gentiles are brought into the people of God through Messiah without becoming Jews. And that's pretty huge. It's so important for us to know. Most of us here are Gentiles. And most of us here have Gentile friends and family who are not Messianic. And they're not observing the Shabbat. And and many of us, if you're like me, spend a long time thinking, I think I'm supposed to be Jewish. I think I better get circumcised, and I think I better have a formal conversion, whatever it takes, because like I want to be a, I want to be a follower of Messiah. And Messiah is Jewish, so if I'm going to be a disciple, I need to, I need to do everything the Jews do. So this is amazing because if you know that we've been brought in to the people of God through Messiah, then we can now no longer judge ourselves and judge our friends that are in the church. We don't have to come at them like, you're lost. You're, you're off the derrick because you're in church on Sunday. Don't you know Shabbat is on Saturday? Would it be a blessing for them to be here on Shabbat? I think so. But they're not under obligation. They're not under obligation. And this is important to our reading that Pamela gave us this morning. Is if we go back and look at this long one sentence in Greek, you're going to notice something about the pronouns. This sentence starts off talking about us and we and our. First of all, it's a blessing to God. It's a baruchu, which we say every, every day, bar, uh, every Shabbat. Baruchu varach. We actually don't translate it in the slides, but what that means is, bless God, the blessed one. And here he begins the same way. Blessed be God. Basically, this is just a long blessing with like lots of annotated like stuff in the middle because at the end it says the one who is blessed. But who, who's being blessed here? He's blessed us with every, with every spiritual blessing. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He destined us for adoption. Us, us. He gave us riches according to his grace. He lavished them on us. 
with all wisdom and insight. He's made known to us the mystery. And in Messiah, we've also obtained an inheritance. Who has the inheritance? We do. We've been destined according to the purpose so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ or Messiah, might live for the praise of his glory. And then all of a sudden, last slide, we've had all this we, we, us, in him, you also. When you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. So what's happened between all this we, we, us stuff and you? Who are we and who is you? Well, I set you up in the intro to remind you that, that you specifically is the Ephesians. And the Ephesians are not in Israel. The Ephesians are Gentiles who've been brought in. So I, I submit to you that we, all this stuff at the beginning, which naturally as Christians we read as applying to us, first and foremost when Paul is writing this, is not actually about Gentiles. It's the we is Jews. Who are the people who are chosen? The chosen people are the Jewish people. Who are the people that need redemption through blood? Who are the people giving sacrifices in the temple? The blood of the animals is, is a Jewish thing. It's a, it's a Torah commandment to do sacrifices. This is not about Gentiles. So all the other blessings that seem so great, this is offensive. You're leaving us out. All this we, that we've attained the inheritance and the destined and who's predestined, who's chosen, all that is for the Jewish people? If you remember, this is all one sentence. So I think the truth is when Paul's writing it, he's saying it's we, it's us. And I know that's offensive, but if you wait a few minutes, we'll come back around. And it gets it good again. Because look, in him, you also. Well, first of all, who are we? He says it right here. We were the first to hope on Messiah. Who, who, who are the first people to be looking forward to a Messiah and having prophets speaking about the Messiah? It's, it's the Jewish prophets. It's the Jewish people. They're the first to hope on Messiah. And that's all for the praise of his glory. That's to, to, to bless Hashem. And you also, Ephesians, Gentiles, Mishkan, Gentiles, Messianic Gentiles, Christians in the church, all of us together. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and I believed in him, you were marked with the seal of the promise, Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. Hallelujah. Bless him. He's also brought us in. So all that other we, us stuff is also for us. But how do we get it? We get it by coming in to the people of God, by coming into the chosen people, by becoming part of the commonwealth of Israel. It's not ours outside of Israel. It's Israel's inheritance that we get to share through Messiah. That's so important. And it's so amazing. Paul goes on to say that the, you know, these, these riches are, are beyond comprehension. They're, they're limitless because they're Christ's own blessings. It's really his inheritance that's being shared with Messiah. He even says it here that it's actually the, the election of Israel is actually first grounded in the election of Messiah. It all starts with God choosing, I'm going to have a Messiah. And you know what? Out of that, I'm going to choose a special people. So really, we're all sharing the same blessings. Israel is sharing the blessing of Messiah. Gentiles are sharing the blessings of Israel through Messiah. We just kind of get in through like a side door. He goes on and talks a lot about this in chapter 2. I'm just going to read it for you. It's basically a sermon. You could just read Ephesians 1 through 3, and it is a sermon. Right? I'm just trying to bring a little bit of more modern flavor to it. But what does he say? In chapter 2, it starts, So then, 
Remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth, he's making it really clear here who you is. Even in that first sentence, he didn't give us an antecedent, what we call it in grammar. It's like, who's you? Who's we? You got to wait till chapter two. So then, remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at one time without Messiah, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Man, he's, he's not pulling any punches for what we were like, what the Gentile state was before Messiah. No hope without God in the world. But now in Messiah Yeshua, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Messiah. It is only through Messiah that Gentiles are brought near, enjoy citizenship, gain access, all this stuff. All these wonderful blessings. The purpose of Messiah was to create in himself, according to chapter 2, what does he call it? The one new man, which is a little bit gendered in language. So let's call it the one new humanity. The one new humanity, which consists of Jews and Gentiles, both coming together. That's why I wanted that as the Torah song. Jew and Gentile, one in Messiah. One new humanity. That's the mystery. Verse 14, for he, Messiah, is our peace, our shalom. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He's writing to the Ephesians, the ones for whom he took a guy from Ephesus into the temple, past the dividing wall. He's in jail for doing that very thing, and he has the audacity to tell them that wall has been demolished in Messiah. That wall is no longer there. Even though in the natural, of course it's there. Here I am in chains writing you from Rome, but spiritually it's gone. We now have access. He talks about verse 15 how Messiah has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances, which is too much to get into because we know he can't have abolished the law from Matthew. I come not to abolish the law. So what does it really mean, that the, the specific ordinances? It has something to do with the customs that keep Jews and Gentiles apart. That part we know is gone. That he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making shalom, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility. So he came, Messiah came, and he proclaimed peace to you who are far off, Gentiles, and peace to those of you who are near, Jews. For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you, you Gentiles, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God. So that's the big mystery. That's the, that's the revealed mystery that's now been revealed. That ancient question, how is Hashem going to handle the nations? The enemies of Israel, will they be crushed? Or will they be converted, absorbed into the Jewish people and thus saved? No, neither one. There's a third way that Paul tells us. In Messiah, they will be made fellow citizens without having to become Jews. By joining the body of Messiah, the Jewish body of Messiah, Gentiles will become part of the people of God. And this means unsearchable riches for us. 
And so then the main prayer of Paul in this letter becomes that Hashem would give his people power to comprehend these riches. He says to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Messiah for us. And this good news is so good that Paul just breaks into this doxology. He's like, praise God, right in the middle of the letter. And so our last question, point three. So how do we know this is true? How do we know we've really been brought in? Maybe, maybe Paul's solution to the mystery is, is wrong because, let's face it, historically speaking, neither side bought it. Neither side bought it. The Jews didn't believe it because they didn't believe the Messiah had come. And so they keep writing these poems, calling down vengeance from God on the Gentiles, which sounds bad when you read it. You're like, ooh, these guys seem pretty nasty. But again, what are they responding to? The Christians didn't buy it either because we didn't believe that our blessings came through Israel. And they continued to tell the Jews, you want to be part of the church, you got to give up your Judaism. You can't even talk to your Jewish relatives. You can't light candles on Shabbat. You got to eat some pork to prove it. And you got to stand up in front of everybody and swear that all that Jewish stuff was of the devil. And you can read it. You can read the exact sorts of texts that the church wrote for Jews to speak when they wanted to become part of the church. That's, that's the rough history, is that Jew and Gentile have not been one in Messiah. And even though Paul claimed that the mystery had been solved, for thousands of years, this, this solution went underground, if you will. And no one was living it. So maybe he was just wrong. Well, what's his defense? In him you also... You Gentiles, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. So the proof is the Holy Spirit. That's how we know it's true. Amen. Amen. If you got the Holy Spirit then you're, you've got the pledge. You know the rest of it's coming. All the other blessings are coming. Where do we first hear about this? I mean, let's think about this. The Gentiles, the, the apostles didn't get it either. Despite the great commission at the end of Yeshua's life, go out into all nations and make, make uh, disciples. What were they thinking probably as Jews? Well, we need to go out into all nations and convert them. They're going back to the first stream of thought. Like, I'll go out into all the nations, and then I'll, I'll, I'll make disciples. That means they'll, they'll get circumcised, and they'll keep Shabbat, and they'll do the Nidah, and they'll do, they'll do the whole thing. It's not until Acts chapter 10, and Peter gets the vision in the sheet. You remember this story? And he, and he goes to see this guy, Cornelius, who's not circumcised. And he goes, and he doesn't even want to go to his house. Because this is the rules and the ordinances that I think Paul's talking about. There was some sort of custom that had been growing up in rabbinic thought. This is pretty rabbis, but you could say, uh, you know, the, um, the Pharisees, pharisaical thought had told Jewish people, Gentiles are dogs. They're unclean. Anything they touch, low tov. Can't go eat with them. Can't be near them. Don't talk to them. Now, that's not in the Torah, but that's what had grown up around this Jewish culture. So Peter had absorbed this. 
this cultural elitism, perhaps even a bit of racism, we could call it. He, he didn't want to go to Cornelius' house. He never would have gone except that the Holy Spirit appeared to him in the dream. And it was a confusing dream because it was about eating unclean animals. And Peter said, I don't eat that stuff. I've never eaten that stuff. And then the dream happened three times, which made him think, maybe it's not actually about my kosher diet. Maybe it's about something else. Maybe it's about people. Maybe it's about people. Because the, the, the message is what God has made clean, let no one declare unclean. God declared those animals unclean. He never said Gentiles were unclean. So when Cornelius shows up and he's like, an angel told me I was supposed to come get you. Peter's like, okay, I, I just heard the same message from the Holy Spirit. He goes, he gives the message. He tells them about the Messiah and everything the Messiah has done. And boom, Holy Spirit falls on these, on these Gentiles. And they're speaking in tongues and they're praising the Lord. And Peter's like, this is it. This is proof. It's really true. God has accepted the Gentiles as Gentiles, not because they got circumcised, just because they came in through Yeshua. Same thing in Acts 15. Now we got the, the Jerusalem council trying to decide, so what do we do about these Gentiles? Because, there, again, there are some Pharisees that came in and said, well, the Gentiles are great as long as they get circumcised, as long as they keep the law of Moses. Again, they're going back to the first stream of thought. They've got to become Jews. What happens in Jerusalem? Peter stands up and tells a story. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not right. It can't be right. I went and I talked to Cornelius. The Holy Spirit dropped on them, just like us. And he says, the Holy Spirit made no distinction between us and them. You've heard that before. In the Spirit, there's no distinction. That's, that's exactly what he says. He made no distinction between us and them because he gave the Holy Spirit and because he purified their hearts by faith. And yet in the natural, of course, there's distinction. That's why he says there's us and them. But in the spirit, there's no distinction. What happens next? Yaakov, James, the brother of Yeshua, he gets, stands up and he quotes Amos. He quotes Amos where it says, I will rebuild the fallen tent of David, the Mishkan David. Ears pricking up. This is for us specifically. Why am I building this fallen tent that all people may seek the Lord, the remnant and the Gentiles who hears my name? Who's the remnant? The Jews. Who are the Gentiles who bear my name? That's, that's us. Gentiles? First of all, Gentiles who bear God's name? That's, that Amos was like off on his own thing in, as far as the Old Testament because Gentiles do not bear the name of Hashem. The name of Hashem is the Lord of Israel, the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. There's no such thing as Gentiles who bear his name, except all of a sudden in Amos. And James, in this moment, Yaakov is thinking about, what do we do with the Gentiles? Well, there's that thing in Amos. Amos says there will be, at some point, Gentiles called by my name. And so, what do they decide? There will be a distinction. The only thing Gentiles need to do, four things. No food polluted by idols, no strangled animals, no blood, no sex outside of marriage. That's the obligation. And that's a beautiful thing. The Holy Spirit is the proof. The pledge of our inheritance to our redemption. And I would say just one more thing. That, that concept that the Jewish people have of God preparing this robe that's stained with the blood of the martyrs 
that Messiah is going to wear and hold up when he starts slaying everyone to prove, I have to do this because this is vengeance. When you read Revelation, John's Revelation, I think it's chapter 19, he talks about the rider on the white horse and he's got a sword coming out of his mouth that he's going to slay the nations with. And what's he wearing? A robe that's been dipped in blood. That robe exists, and it does have the blood of Jewish martyrs on it. But who is the quintessential Jewish martyr whose blood is covering all the other blood? He's wearing the robe that's covered in his own blood. And so when he goes out to bring vengeance on the nations and he sees you or he sees you, he says, not that one. That one's already covered in my blood. And not that one. That one's covered in my blood. Not that one, 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 not that one. All of us who are covered in his blood have been brought in to the praise and the glory of his name. Now may he who is abundantly and exceedingly able to do more than all we ask or imagine, to him be glory, kavod, in the assembly, kavod in Yeshua HaMashiach, for all generations, lador vador, leolam vaed.